This is Speaking Freely with the ACLU of Pennsylvania. I'm Andy Hoover, your host and director of communications at the ACLU of PA. On February 29th, we celebrated the ACLU centennial with a big bash at the National Constitution Center in Philadelphia. More than 500 people attended to celebrate a century of achievement by this noisy organization. We had numerous special guests on hand. One of them was Ellery Shemp. You may not know him by name, but you know the result of what he did. In 1956, when Ellery was an 11th grader in Abington, Pennsylvania, outside of Philadelphia, Ellery protested his school's mandatory daily Bible readings by reading from the Quran and then refusing to stand during the Lord's Prayer. The protest of this one teenager turned into a federal constitutional lawsuit filed by the ACLU of Pennsylvania with co-counsel from the law firm Drinker Biddle. It ultimately ended up in front of the Supreme Court, leading the court to strike down laws that mandate Bible readings in public schools as unconstitutional under the First Amendment. Before our centennial celebration, Ellery had lunch with ACLUPA staff, and he was gracious enough to spend some time talking with me about his experiences for the podcast. I think you'll really enjoy this look back at how this case came to be and what happened. Let's hear from Ellery Shemp. Well, Ellery, thank you for being here, for meeting with our staff and taking the time to talk about uh, your experience as the uh, student who took on Abington School District's reading of Bibles, the Bible verses in school. Um, that must have been quite an amazing experience for you. Uh, and I know you're very passionate still to this day about religious liberty and separation. Um, let's go back to the beginning. Why did you decide to take on that law that required readings in school? Well, it was uh, clearly an imposition of a Christian religious practice on all of the students, no matter what their religious beliefs might be. And it was a little bit silly. And it was also used in a rather bad way, I think, by, by many of the teachers, not all, uh, in which they would cite the Bible as being the uh, responsible for their beliefs or the, whatever the school's lesson was. And of course, where the Bible contradicts, contradicts science, I was very upset about that. And so all together, it seemed to me like an unfair practice, and it was unnecessary. Why, why have to, you can do all the Bible reading you want at home. And that was a state law at the time, so it dated back to the 1800s. Um, this was something that you had grown up with all through your school career. Oh, yeah. It was, it was mandatory. <laughs> yeah. So at what point did you decide, you know, this is something I want to take on? Well, I, I noticed that some of my Jewish uh, friends were very uncomfortable. I noticed that the, some of my Catholic friends were saying slightly different versions of the Lord's Prayer or were reading slightly different versions uh, or different interpretations of the Bible. So the whole idea of one-size-fits-all was very annoying to me. And there was no such thing as the Holy Bible. There are umpteen Holy Bibles. And not only are Bibles, but there are other Holy Scriptures. There's the Koran, there's the Bhagavad Gita, there's many, many um, important Scriptures of this age. But I also didn't believe that any book that was written 2,000 years ago had any particular uh, wisdom that was worth passing on. And did you have, at the time as a teenager, like did the thought of separation of church and state, was that something that had crossed your mind? Well, I was familiar with the First Amendment um, and Congress will make no law and all that. And so I thought it was a clear violation of the First Amendment. This was clearly a Christian religious practice that was established in the schools. 
And I was much influenced by a book called The Democratic Way of Life uh, that talked in an idealistic ways about uh, fraternity, liberté, equality. Um, and so I believe very strongly in the idea of, of the democratic, democratic process and democratic ways and the rights of the minority, which is an important constituent of uh, our understanding of majority rule. And it also, um, it's so important to remind, remember that there's nothing in the Bible about democracy or voting or, um, or freedom of religion or freedom of speech. There's nothing in the Bible about any of those things. So right. our, our uh, government and constitution don't derive from the Bible at all. Uh, and on the other hand, there's nothing in the Constitution about the Bible or Christianity. It never once mentioned, well, the Bible mentions religion just twice. One is in the Article 6 about the um, no religious test and, no, of course, in the First Amendment. So the, the two times that the, Bible, that the Constitution mentions religion, the word no is attached. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> um, and so, um, you know, and the preamble begins, we the people. It doesn't make any reference to divine providence or any such thing, uh, and it doesn't incorporate the Ten Commandments or any other of these religious doctrines. So there's nothing, nothing wonderful about the Bible being in support of democracy and, and our, our kind of government, uh, and there's nothing in the Constitution that makes the Bible stand out as, as especially worthwhile. So how did the challenge start? What were the first actions you took to take this on? Well, I'd thought about uh, making a protest, and I guess this is maybe in the early days of um, the civil rights movement, so the idea of um, civil protest or something was, at least in the era, hadn't really gotten very strong in 1956. I did not have in mind that this would ever become a court case. What I had in mind was that um, this business about the Holy Bible, that could be dismissed by simply showing that there are other holy books in the world. And uh, I had sort of the naive notion that... Um, this was simply an oversight, and once the adults had gotten the wind of it, they would fix the problem. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, so if, only, I, if only it worked that way. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I later learned that. <laughs> so I, I took a copy of the Koran. I borrowed a copy from my friend George Tappert's father's library, and, uh, so, and I didn't know anything about the Koran or Muslim, uh, Islam um, at the time. Um, so I, I brought it to school. And instead of sitting in rapt attention listening to the Bible being read, I read the Koran quietly to myself. And I did not stand up for the Lord's Prayer. Um, there's no such prayer in the, in the Koran, of course, or in Muslim traditions. Sure. Um, and so um, the teacher noticed this, and the homeroom teacher, and we had a little discussion. And then he sent me to the principal. And the principal was very perturbed and um, said, well, you know, there's 1,300 other students in this school, and they're all not making waves, um, and they're showing respect. That was the word he liked to use. <laughs> I said, well, I, I differ with you. I think the First Amendment is important. I think uh, the separation of church and state is important. And um, he decided that he had a very disturbed young man on his hands and sent me to the guidance counselor. And the guidance counselor wanted to know whether I was having difficulties at home, whether I was difficulties with my father, or there's difficulties here, there, elsewhere. And I said, no, we're not having any difficulties at all. I just, 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 we just differ on Bible reading. <laughs> right. <laughs> and the way that— And I wasn't having difficulties because I was a good student. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Uh, I do want to go back for a moment. The way that you mentioned being in class and you're you're sitting there reading the Quran while a verse is being read. Um, my understanding from hearing you speak previously before we started recording is that the students, by the time you got to high school, the students were the ones doing the reading. Correct. 
So when you had the opportunity to choose, <laughs> you had a little bit of fun with that. <laughs> yeah, on a couple of occasions. One is that a number of the books of the Bible began begin with Abraham begat Joseph, and Joseph begat so-and-so, and somebody begat him. There's a whole lot of begetting going on in the Bible. Right. <laughs> it was actually one of my classmates who began reading these begets, and uh, this goes on for a couple of days. <laughs> right. <laughs> and the teacher got very annoyed. Um, there was too much begetting for <laughs> our taste. <laughs> And so he said, you got to stop it. Well, at actually, at that point, she broke the law because the law said, by, the verses should be read without comment. Now, that showed very much that it was a Protestant idea that led to this Bible reading business because in the Catholic tradition, the, the priest reads the Bible and interprets it for the masses. Mm-hmm. But in the Protestant tradition, everybody is supposed to read it for themselves. Um, and, and any comment would then show a bias towards one interpretation or another. So, um, so that anyhow, so she made a comment: no more begetting. <laughs> <laughs> um, and on, on one occasion for me, um, I remember uh, picking up the Song of Solomon. Well, it's a little bit um, racy, I suppose. <laughs> it's a love poem. Uh, it's right? a love poem. That's what it is, <laughs> um, and uh, it's colorful. Uh, um, and I remember re- reading um, that King Solomon had. Three hundred wives and seven hundred concubines, if I remember correctly, and I thought this was distinctly inspiring because at the time I aspired to only having a single girlfriend. <laughs> so your principal calls you down and talks about being uh, respectful and students being respectful, and you're talking about the First Amendment. Um, and I'm sure you, after our conversation, he went home and read the, the, the First Amendment. Yeah. <laughs> um, so then you have a conversation with your parents about it yes. and what happens at that point. Well, so I told them what happened during school. And, and after this uh, first hour or something with the guidance counselor, I was sent back to regular classes and the rest of the school day proceeded uneventfully. So at dinner time, I explained, told my folks what had happened. And uh, my father said, why don't you write a letter to the ACLU? And I did. And he was a member at the time, <laughs> He right? was a member, yes. Uh, yeah. He had been very um, concerned about the McCarthy era, and he knew that the ACLU was standing up against some of these excesses. I don't think he ever made a connection to um, what I was doing in the separation of church and state, but he was very very progressive for his days. So I wrote, I, I sat at my dad's typewriter, and with two fingers typed out a letter to the ACLU. Uh, and I had the good thought of uh, including a $10 bill now, that turns out to be worth about $90 in today's money. Wow. <laughs> and the ACLU at that time was feeling rather poor, um, and they were trying to harbor their resources um, for fear that there would be another, other aspects of the McCarthy era that they needed their resources for. Mm-hmm. They hadn't realized that it was waning. It was a reasonable position. Anyhow, so they were very happy to get my letter. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, it went to Spencer Cox, who was the executive director right here. Right. So there are a lot of... Um, uh, questions that came up in the ACLU's mind. One, of course, was to call up my dad and says, look, are you guys serious? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> a reasonable question. Sure. And, um, you know, and my dad assured them that he would stand behind his kids. Um, and then there were more interviews. Uh, Bernie Wolfman, who was an attorney here, um, had planned to make himself uh, a civil rights attorney, um, and he was Jewish. And um, so he came out to visit the family and uh, and talked to Roger and Donna and asked, you know, reasonable questions like, are you in on this too? Whatever. <laughs> uh, Donna was a little bit reluctant. <laughs> yeah. um, um, and so he came back to the board here, and the board consisted of um, 11 people. Um, there were 10, 10 regular members plus the chairman of the board, a man named Clark Bice, mm-hmm. B-Y-C-E. 
And so there's this discussion about whether they should take up the what became the Eppington case. Um, and uh, the, the board was equally divided. Um, some said that we should not be using our resources for this, and others said you know, that it's an important issue that akin to freedom of um, speech and freedom of everything, uh, First Amendment freedoms. And so the vote was, was five to five. Yeah. Uh, and Clark Bice, who normally as the chairman wouldn't have voted, was there to break the tie vote. And he said, I've listened to these arguments. And he said, there's no discussion, of, there's no dispute on the merits of the case. It's only a question of resources. I therefore wrote that we take it up. Wow. And that's how one vote made a difference. Wow. And it was also interesting because Clark Bice was actually a, a sincere Roman Catholic and believed very much that Bible reading was important for the moral uh, fabric of society. Hmm. <laughs> but he, he had his principles about the separation. Wow. That, and that is certainly something that we to this day have to make decisions about in terms of resources, you know, setting priorities and what can we take, what can we not take on. At that point, if this is 1956, the Greater Philadelphia Branch, which became the ACLU of Pennsylvania eventually, uh, was founded in 1951. So the organization oh. was fairly new. ACLU wasn't, of course. We were founded in 1920. Mm -hmm. And there had been some civil liberties committees and some activity in Pennsylvania. But in terms of becoming an affiliate of the ACLU, it just happened five years before. So um, I didn't know that. Yeah, it was all very new. Um, so oh, I, I want to finish up a little comment about Bernie Wolfman. Oh, yeah. Uh, he was, um, <clears throat> it was keen to um, becoming a, an important civil liberties, civil rights lawyer. Um, and he was very much in favor of our of our position on Bible reading and prayer. And he decided to withdraw from the case because he said, I'm a Jew, and therefore this will ha could, well, hurt the case, and then it'll be cause for anti-Semitism, mm -hmm. and, uh, and may weaken the case to have a Jew bring the case rather than a Protestant like Henry Sawyer. And so he withdrew. I met him five years ago. He was, became a professor at Harvard Law School. He went into tax law and various things. And I could still hear the sadness in his voice when he described how he withdrew on the one he thought would be for the better good of the case. Hmm. He was a very, very ethical man. Yeah. So the f case gets filed, and I assume at some point this starts to become relatively public. Uh, yes. What was that experience <laughs> well, like? Well, the first time it was in uh, when the court hearing took place, and <laughs> this is another funny uh, accident of history. Um, the court hearing at Federal District Courthouse in Philadelphia took place on August 5th, 1958. Uh, August 5th is my birthday. <laughs> oh, that's wild. <laughs> that was Happy wild. birthday to you. <laughs> and um, I had already graduated from high school at that point. I was on my way to Tufts. Oh, wow. Okay. I, I, I well, in. actually, speaking about that for a moment, because you, you referenced your siblings. Yes. Um, you had graduated at that point. And it was your siblings that kept the case going because they were still in school. That's correct. Otherwise, it was moot. Right. Okay. All right. So, uh, so you end up in court. Um, well, tell us about that experience. I understand you testified in front of. Yeah, the all of us testified, um, except my mother. But uh, Roger, Donna, and my father, and my myself, and so they were keen to know whether um, what what was it about Bible reading that conflicted with our religious beliefs, hmm. and did we believe in the Trinity? No. Did we believe in um, miracles? No. Did we believe in uh, Adam and Eve? No. <laughs> right. Uh, and that was that was the essence of it all, just to establish a, a grounds that um, it, it was a religious activity that discriminated against our family's belief systems. Sure.
I guess as this ramped up, you're out of high school at this point. You're in college, correct? Correct. You were yes. in college. You you were away from home. You went to Tufts. Um, did you were you getting information about what life was like back home for your siblings oh, and for well, your family? Yes, of course. Um, and they would describe the latest batch of letters that came in, for example. Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> the letters were mixed, as you could imagine. Yeah. Um, and they divided into into thirds, more or less. Uh, one third were supportive, largely from the Jewish community, at, uh, some civil libertarian types. Um, and, uh, and one third of them were in opposition, but reasonable letters. Men of goodwill could differ. And of course, one third of them were simply hateful and uh, nasty. And some of them, I mean, people just love doing, pic- uh, cutting a, or tearing a picture out of the newspaper and writing a swastika over it. Wow. <laughs> and some of the worst ones were... Smeared with feces. Wow. So some of them were pretty gross. Did your siblings say anything about what life was like at school? Roger got roughed up a couple times, pushed down on the ground, and wasn't really badly hurt, but it's no fun. Donna was mortified. Yeah. (laughs) Um, And tried to keep herself as distant from it as possible. Um, But within the family, she agreed with us, but half-heartedly. Right. So what were you thinking and feeling as this case is working its way up through the system? I mean, you get to the Supreme Court. I mean, that's that's a huge deal. Well, it turned out to be huger than I thought at the yeah. time. Henry Sawyer was a masterful lawyer and, um, you know, presented the case extremely well. Um, but again, it hadn't – it really didn't get a whole lot of attention until the decision came out in 1963. Mm-hmm. And of course, well, and uh, Madeline Murray had an interesting role. I mean, her case, as I was describing earlier, was joined with ours, so it was Abington versus Shemp and Murray versus Curlin. And Adam, Madeline Murray is a very colorful figure, a very outspoken atheist, and she drew a lot of the fire. <laughs> mm. right? um, Life magazine put her on the cover under the head, banner headline, The Most Hated Woman in America. And so, um, they, oh, and from the letters we dis- discovered that it was, it was it was bad to be a non-Christian. Mm-hmm. It, of course, it was very bad to be a communist. But the worst possible thing you could be was an atheist. Right. right? And so many of our letters expressed exactly that. Uh, and so she drew that that fire. The connection between our stand on free, separation of church and state and the Nazi swastika has always baffled me. <laughs> right, yeah. And the other thing that was funny, we would get letters that said, well, what are you, Jews? Uh, what are you, commies? I mean, you expect this kind of letter. We didn't expect the letters that said, what are you, Presbyterians? <laughs> right, right. right. <laughs> huh. So you followed, you have followed over the years the religious liberty debates, I understand. Um, you're still passionate about them? Oh, very much. I think it's a, a cornerstone principle. And I hate to see religion being used for political purposes. And uh, I mean, it's, it's, it's manipulative. Um, it's, it's dishonest. Um, and as I was mentioning earlier, there's nothing in the Constitution that favors religion or, uh, over non-religion or uh, particularly Christianity over other religions. And there's nothing in the Bible that uh, is particularly supportive of, of, of democracy. And it, I mean, um, the idea of three parts of divisions of government, uh, co-equal branches of government, did not come from divine revelation. And um, there's nothing in the Bible that supports freedom of speech or freedom of religion or freedom of anything. Right. And, uh, the word freedom, I don't think, actually exists in the Bible. And I understand that you continue, you've worked with students, um, with some secular student associations, and you've supported students who are passionate about or are active on these issues. 
Yes. Um, well, I, I'm at an age where I want to pass the torch to the next generation. I want to see younger people involved with these important issues. And I think freedom of religion, and particularly non-establishment, is, that's the clause that's being ignored by the present administration. And so they have all this freedom of, of, of religion stuff, by which they really mean freedom to discriminate against gays, freedom to discriminate against women, freedom of, you know, that's, that's what their freedoms are yeah. all about, not freedom of belief. You can believe whatever you like already. Um, but they, they want to enact laws based upon their interpretation of these, uh, these things. But they're ignoring the Establishment Clause almost completely. And the Establishment Clause is very important because it says that Congress shall make no law regarding an establishment of religion. That means preferring Christianity in some form or guise. Um, and, of course, when you talk about Christianity, you have to remember there's, I think, at the last count, there's 198 different denominations in this country. <laughs> right. So, once again, it can't be one size fits all. You know, I'm always amazed at our student clients because oftentimes they're taking on challenging issues. They are issues that directly impact their lives. I think about our transgender clients um, who have been willing to stand up to things that their school is doing. What is your advice for a student who sees something at their school that they think needs challenged? Well, I think it's important to raise challenges. Um, you don't necessarily have to take everything to court, but you need to raise challenges. I mean, that makes people think and uh, forces them to uh, consider the options and, and whether this is truly fair and whether this is in the best interest of our society and our country. Um, so I, I think making challenges is, is good and it keeps everybody on their toes. These kinds of protests or concerns, you know, it's part of the educational experience. It forces you to read up on, on various arguments and maybe even write essays <laughs> to your right. English class or something or your history class. Oh, this is the point I wanted to make. Think about now if these Bible reading practices were still going on in the present political circumstances. Hmm. Students would be free to choose Leviticus to attack gay students. Right. They, uh, all, kinds of, all kinds of nasty passages in the Bible. Yeah. Um, and uh, somebody counted up that there's one, more than 1,300,000 people who are killed in the, in the Bible. Right. The Bible is not a book fit for children. <laughs> you know, the, the, the diversity of our country is so different than it was uh, in the 50s. You know, in, yes. in, in the mid-60s, you had the Immigration Act, which opened up immigration from other from other places where it had been previously restricted. So now you have people coming into the country with religions that were not very prominent um, at the time that you were Absolutely. engaged there, in your There challenge. were no Muslims in, my, in Abington. <laughs> right. Maybe even all of Pennsylvania. Who knows? <laughs> right. But I'm sure there are now. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, you know, just to the point that in today's environment, I think today's students are growing up with more exposure, not all, you know, depending upon where they live, but students are growing up with more exposure to more cultures, whereas you probably didn't have that same experience. Very, very, very true. I mean, anti-Semitism was still prevalent in many parts of society in many different guises. Yeah. And uh, so I was very much aware of that, and it, it really um, offended my sense of fairness and fair play. Right. And uh, I thought that Bible reading just played into the, the worst instincts in people. Yeah. Well, Ellery, thanks for taking the time. Um, it's really insightful. I appreciate the fact that you're still out there championing civil liberties. Well, thank you very much. I've had a very nice, it's been a very welcoming experience here at ACLU in Pennsylvania and Philadelphia. Yeah. So you're a very friendly and happy group. <laughs> we try to be. It's, it's hard to be happy all the time these days, but we try to find some happiness from time to time. So thank you. Thank you, too.
So there you have it, how one of the most consequential Supreme Court cases of the 20th century came to be. Thanks to Ellery Shemp for his time, his reflections, and for being a champion of religious liberty. And that brings episode 38 to a close. If you like the podcast, be sure to rate us on your podcast app of choice, including now on Spotify. Those ratings help more people find the show. The editor of Speaking Freely is Amy Giacomucci. Our music is from bensound.com. The executive director of the ACLU of Pennsylvania is Reggie Shuford. I'm Andy Hoover. Until next time, be free. Be free.